25 through 37 from the English Standard Version. We'll have it on the screen as well. Our custom here at the Bridge Church is that when we read the Word of God, we stand in honor and reverence of God's Word. So if you are able and willing, please stand with us as we go to God's Word. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do? To inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? And how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal. And brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God, all to the glory of God. You may be seated. As we look at this story, the first thing I want us to take a look at is the occasion of this story. The occasion of this story. As we look at the occasion around what this story, uh, the context of this story, look with me first of all at the question asked in verse 25. The question asked. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Brothers and sisters, this is a good question with a bad motive. The motive behind the question is to invalidate Christ as a teacher. It's to see if Jesus, being this master teacher, the rabbi, is going to uphold the law. It's to question the, the credibility of Christ. Now, remember, the person that asked this question is a lawyer. Now, in, in the Bible, a lawyer was actually a theologian. The, the, the lawyer, he was also called a scribe. He, the lawyer was an expert in the interpretation and application of the law. The Pentateuch, the, the first five books 
of the Bible. Oftentimes, this lawyer traveled alongside Pharisees, so when the Pharisees uh, needed information about the law, they would just look to the lawyer, and they would ask them questions about the law. So, So this supposed expert in the law is testing Christ to see how he will answer a much discussed theological question of their day. What must a person do to inherit eternal life? Though the motive is flawed, the question is good still. This is the greatest question ever to be asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? See, for the Jew, eternal life was life spent with God in the final resurrection. His question actually is, how can I be sure I'll be saved in the final resurrection and then not spend eternity separated from God? My brothers and my sisters, this is a question that should be asked by every person. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's interesting actually about this question, this is just basic observation of the text, is he asks, What must I do to inherit? I'm puzzled upon first glance of this because normally you don't do anything to receive an inheritance. Normally, in order to receive an inheritance, you just got to be born into the right family. Sucks for my kids because I'm not leaving them nothing. (laughs) Y'all, we'll see. But this lawyer here, he wants to know, how can I earn, there it is, eternal life? Friends, eternal life is not something to be earned. Eternal life is a gift to be received. It's given to those who've been born into the family of God. By trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross, was buried and rose on the third day. And and when we believe and we trust in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, when we trust in him and not in ourselves or anything else, we are adopted into the family of God. So we don't do anything to inherit eternal life. We just receive it as a gift by faith. So that's the question asked. Look at the question answered in verse 26. And he said to him, this is Jesus saying, what is written in the law? And how do you read it? (laughs) I like Jesus. Because his answer to the question is another question. I'm going to use it. But that was actually typical of the culture in the day. A rabbi, when they were teaching their students, they would typically answer a question with a question. And so Jesus, as typical of a rabbi, he he asked this question, what did the law say? Jesus goes to their shared source of authority, the word of God. He didn't ask him his opinion on the matter. He doesn't ask him what does science say. He says, what does God say about this matter? And so this man quotes what's called the Shema. Shema in Hebrew means to hear. 
the Shema, it was quoted at least twice a day by a good Jew. And he sums up the law with these two commands. Love God perfectly and love others as yourself. That's, that's the lawyer's response. A good lawyer, a good expert in the law would know this. Love God perfectly and wholeheartedly and love others as yourself. Jesus responds in verse 28, you'd be a good boy. You, you, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, you should have gotten some spiritual frustration right about then. Because I just told you that eternal life is not something to be earned, but it's a gift to be received. But here we're saying, Jesus say, do this and you will live. Let's, let, let's read the text together. Jesus is saying that if the law is your hope for eternal life, then you're going to have to keep the law perfectly. If you desire to be right with God based on law keeping, then do it perfectly and you'll have eternal life. The goal is to get this man to see, oh my gosh, I could never keep the law perfectly. I need something or someone outside of myself who can do this. Church, the law was to show us the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. 23, where Paul says the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. And now faith has come and we are no longer under a tutor. The, the law was to be a mirror for us. We were supposed to look at it and see how sinful we were. So at this point, you would think the conversation is over. Move on to the next question. You would think that the lawyer would admit his inability to fulfill the great commandment and will look to Christ for salvation. But that's not what happens. Look what happens. We move from the occasion. Now we're going to see the obstacle to eternal life. Here's what happens. Verse 29 says, but he, desiring to justify himself, stop. That's the obstacle to receiving eternal life, self-justification. He, he wanted to make himself right with God. He wanted to do it based on his own merit, his, his own work. He, he wanted to pronounce himself as righteous. He wanted to vindicate himself. Church, the obstacle of faith is always self-justification. Us wanting to save ourselves, make ourselves right with God. We, we, let me show you how we self-justify ourselves. We say, if, I just, if I'm just good enough, if I'm just nice enough, hopefully I'll get in. If, if I try harder, Maybe I would be pleasing to God. 
We justify ourselves oftentimes by comparing our, our own morality to the morality of others. Watch this. this you, 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 here's what we do. At least I'm not as bad as that guy. At least I'm Brandon and not Danielle. <laughs> Hallelujah. At, at least I don't gossip as much as Daniel. At least I don't, at least I serve more than her. I give more than him. Okay, all right. Y'all say, no, I, I know I'm saved by faith. Well, well, are you approaching your sanctification the same way you do your salvation? Rewind, press play. Many times we agree that we're saved by faith, but once we're saved, we revert back to works. If I do this and I do that and I check off the checklist, then I'll be good with God. But the same way you're saved is the same way you stay saved. Oh, am I in here by myself? Here's what we do. We think if we pray long enough, if we fast long enough, if we keep our quiet times enough, and practice other spiritual disciplines, then we'll be right with God. By the way, we ought to do those things. But those things are a means to an end. And unfortunately, a lot of us make them an end in themselves. The ongoing struggle for both the unsaved and the saved is self-justification. Trying to make ourselves right with God by our works. Trying to earn favor with God by what we do. Church, that's antithetical to the gospel. When we believe the gospel, we are justified. Justification is the act by which God declares us righteous. It's an act of God, not an act of ourselves. Read your Bible. There is none righteous. There is none good. That includes you. On our own, we are unable to have to trust Jesus Christ. That's why we've got to pray and sing to God. Give me faith. Because left on our own, we will raise our fist at God and rebel against him. That's our own sinful human nature. But God woos us to himself. And as he woos us, he, he, he gives us the faith to trust in Jesus Christ. For our salvation. And so, here's, here's how we also justify ourselves. We also try to justify ourselves when we try to bring down God's high standard so that it's easier to accept. That's what this lawyer does when he asks Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? That's what he said in the text. Here's what this lawyer is trying to do. He's trying to limit his love to a certain group of people. Now I'm going to start meddling. This lawyer, he only wants to be held accountable for loving those who look like him. Those who talk like him. By the way, Just because somebody doesn't talk like you and they use slang and their verbs and their subject may not always agree doesn't mean they're ignorant and stupid. Yeah. 
When we came, when, 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 when uh, our founding fathers came over here and they started to, the, the dialect of their English started to change, guess what the people over in England said? They were a bunch of country bumpkins. You sounded weird to them. Okay, I get on my soapbox. Y'all don't like it. But he only wanted to love those who look like him, talk like him, live near him. Who shared his cultural ways. Who shared his worldview. Who voted like him. Who thought like him. Who was of his same race and ethnicity. So that's why you ask the question, who is my neighbor? This time, Jesus, he's still going to ask a question, but he's going to precede the question with a story. When the rabbi starts telling the story, watch out. <laughs> We're going to move from the occasion. And what was my second point? The obstacle. And Jesus is going to give us an obligation in the text. But before we get to the obligation, let's look at this story that Jesus tells. Look with me first at the setting of the story. Jesus says, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem was thousands of feet above sea level. Jericho was hundreds of feet below sea level. Depending on your, the, 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 uh, your research, you can see People will say that the distance from Jerusalem to Jericho, as far as sea level is concerned, was anywhere between 2,500 to 4,000 feet. And so that's why this man is going down from Jerusalem. Now, as he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, um, he's on this road. And this road, it's rocky. It, it, it winds, and it's surrounded by caves, which is a good place to hide out in. That's the setting. Let's look at the situation together. This, the situation says, as this man is coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho, he fell among robbers who, who stopped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So Jesus says, there was a priest that happened to be going down that road. Oh, yay, the good old priest. And Jesus says, when the priest saw this half-dead man, he actually saw him, looked at him. He chose to pass on the other side. Just so you know, the priest was one who offered sacrifices for people in the temple temple. He lifted up the people before God. The, the priest was to be the example of what a good Jew was. But yet, the priest doesn't offer any help to this man. Now, many reasons have been given as to why the priest decided to pass by on the other side. Some say he want, didn't want to be defiled. Only problem with that is he was going down from Jerusalem. So he had plenty of time to be cleansed. And we can go over and over about why the priest decided to go on the other side rather than going to help this man. But the text in Christ gives us no reason. 
I presume, and it's only a presumption, that the reason Christ doesn't give a reason is because there is no excuse. Now, it's only a presumption on my part. Now, he says, the priest looks at him, goes on the other side. There's a Levite. Okay, there's still hope. The Levite was a member of the tribe of Levi. They, they assisted the priest in the temple. What does the Levite do? The same thing the priest does. Goes by on the other side. It wasn't because he didn't see him, because the text says he saw him. He sees him, half dead, and goes by on the other side. We see the setting, we see the situation. Let's look at the Samaritan now. Jesus uses that drastic contrast, but, this conjunction, but, a Samaritan saw him, and it was the Samaritan, the text says, that had compassion. Church, this is drastic. Remember last week we said Samaritans and Jews had a deep disdain for one another. The, the, the Jews saw Samaritans as political sellouts and half-breeds. The Jews disliked the Samaritans so much that they made up a rule saying eating with the Samaritan was like eating pork, which was a no-no for Jews. They did not like one another, but this Samaritan sees this half-dead man who was likely a Jew himself because he's coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He, sees, he doesn't see his Jewishness, but he sees him as a fellow man. And the text says he had compassion on him. Look, look at the Samaritan's response. He had compassion. Let me say this. Compassion doesn't end in the heart. Compassion starts in the heart and ends with the hand. If your compassion doesn't move you to act, it's not biblical compassion. Did I say something wrong? Y'all figuring it out. Y'all still trying to wonder if I said anything wrong or not. Look at, let's, let's just look at the, let's study the origin of this word compassion. It's a compound word. You've got the prefix com, which means with or together. And then you have this old late Latin term passion, which means suffer. So someone who has compassion is someone who suffers with another person. The, the, you, you, you enter into the other person's pain. Help me preach this thing. This, this Samaritan joins in this man's struggle, in this man's mess. And I think that's something for us to remember in our goal of reconciliation. If we ought to be reconciled to others, we have to try to understand the other person's pain. We, 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 we've got to stop saying, well, they just need to do better. They just need to work harder. This is America. We all have just equal chances. That's a privileged statement, my friend. And I say that out of love. He goes to the man and enters the pain and the suffering of this man. The problem in the church is too many of us act like the priest and the Levite. 
we see the pain and we ignore it and avoid it. I can't wait till next week because I won't be preaching this sermon. He, the priest and the Levite see the hurt out there. The priest and the Levite, they, they see this man that's been left for half dead. We, we see a community that's been left for half dead. And too many churches have acted like the priest and the Levite and said, we're going to ignore it and avoid it because the church can't survive in this community. Ain't no money there. I'll read your emails later this week. <laughs> but the text makes it clear that the response of the priest and the Levite is not loving or nor neighborly. Watch what the text says that the, that the Samaritan's compassion leads him to do. He says he, he goes to him. Watch, watch, listen, did you hear what I said? He, he went to him. Y'all, this is life-on-life life interaction. It's not love from a distance. It's intentional engagement. People have come to me and say, so, so and, 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 and I'm grateful for them. Like Pastor Kurt Romack, he's preached, preached here a couple of times. White pastor over at First Street, he's the missions pastor. My buddy, my friend, loving to death. My other friend, Stephen Christian from West Evangelical, well, First MB now. <laughs> Another friend. All this stuff starts popping off. All this racial tension, this, the, the killings, the, 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 the riots, everything. And they come to me, they say, Brandon, what am I supposed to do? And what they didn't realize that they already had, they, they already made the first step. They came to me. Rather than saying what I ought to feel and how I ought to behave and what these persons should have done, they said, help me understand the pain, the suffering, the struggle. That's the first step. Get an understanding. Go to the person. Help me understand because I don't get it. He goes to him. And after he goes to him, he starts meeting felt needs. He provides first aid for this man. Now, if there had been some of us, we would have been looking at him like, what happened? What got you here? Who did this to you? We would have started doing a game of who did this, why they did that, why are you here? The text, he never goes to the man and starts asking him questions. All he says is a fellow man in need, and he starts meeting the needs. The text says he bound up his wound by pouring oil on him. Oil was the pain reliever. He also poured wine on it. That was a disinfectant. Not only does he give him first aid, but then this man starts giving up his own resources. First thing he gave up was his vehicle. says he put him on his own animal, which more than likely meant that the Samaritan walked. Then he gave up his own money. The, man, the text says that he took two denarii. One denarii was one day's worth of wages. So that man gives up two days' worth of wages. Take your salary. And think about how much you make per day, double it, 
And that's what this Samaritan did. Two days worth of his own wages, which would have provided up to 24 days of lodging. Look at how extravagant this Samaritan's love is. He gives up his vehicle. He gives up his money. Then he provides him with housing. He takes him to an inn. And then watch this. Once he gets to the inn, he tells the innkeeper, I'd like to have an open tab for this man. <laughs> Y'all looking at me like Brandon is crazy. That's what Jesus is telling the story. He says, you take care of him. And whatever, if, he, if any of the charges go over what I've already put down, I'll repay you when I come back. It's an open tab. Look, look at how extravagant his, his, his generosity is. I think Jesus is trying to show us is that the question is not who is my neighbor, but the better question is, how do I love my neighbor? And Jesus says, this is a model worth following. You love without limits. Who is my neighbor? Anyone in need regardless of race or location. Why is reconciliation then so hard for our country? We lack love. Why? And I told you this last week. Why does the hood exist? We're missing the neighbor. And so Jesus says to this, to, he, he asked this lawyer, he says, so who proved to be a neighbor? And he has to respond, the one who showed mercy. And notice, <laughs> he's still so stuck in his Jewishness that he, he won't even say the Samaritan. He says the one who showed mercy. And Jesus responds to this lawyer, you go and do likewise. This point, my goal, we, we, there's a couple, there's all different ways that this could be applied. But remember, the original intent, how this whole conversation got started was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love God, love others. I can't do that. But I know somebody who can. And he did it. And that's Jesus Christ himself. And so if I can hook up with Jesus, then Jesus, he, 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 will, he will do it. He'll show me how to do it. He'll empower me to do it. But even when I get to heaven, and the quest, if the question comes up, and God says, did you love me with all your heart, soul, and mind? And did you love your neighbor as yourself? I have to say, no, I didn't, but my Savior did. And Jesus says, enter into my, and God says, enter into my rest. So we look to Jesus for this. But guess what? The good Samaritan, yeah, we, we should be like the Samaritan. But the greatest good Samaritan was Jesus himself. He came and entered into our suffering. 
And matter of fact, he took our suffering upon himself to the point of dying on the cross where they put nails in his hands, a crown of thorns on his head. They nailed his feet. And it was on the cross that in our place condemned he stood. He suffered for us. He took on our pain. He entered into flesh. He became a human being. He came into our space to identify with us. And and he died on the cross and he was buried. Oh, but the good news from heaven is bright early Sunday morning. Our Savior got up with all power in his hands. My brothers and my sisters, if you believe that, if if you are willing To trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you will be saved. Saved from what? The wrath of God. My pastor used to say, everybody has eternal life. Now, now now you're going to say, your pastor believed in universalism? No, 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 no. He qualified it. He said, everybody's going to have eternal life. The question is, where are you going to spend it? In heaven? Help me preach in here. Questions on the table for you, my friends. Worship team, you can come back. Where will you spend eternity? God sent you by the Bridge Church on August 14, 2016. It wasn't by happenstance. It wasn't by chance. God sovereignly sent you to hear that he loves you so much that the penalty you deserve, he put on, your, on his own son, Jesus Christ, so that you could have eternal life. How do you have it? Belief, trust, faith. It's, it's, it's a turning from your, whatever you are trusting in to make you right with God to trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. And God says, you can be a part of my family. One of the worst theological statements that you can make, hear me well, is that we are all God's children. That's not biblical. We are all God's creation, but only those who believe does he give the right, the authority to become the child of God. Only those who believe are children of God. you believe? Will you trust Jesus Christ for salvation? 